doing things a little bit different this week. Uh, the local health officials have made some uh, recommendations in light of the COVID-19, and, and the elders of Redeemer Church wanted to follow through uh, with, with their recommendations, uh, not out of fear, but uh, in love and, and concern for our neighbors, especially those most, most vulnerable among us. Uh, while you're at home gathering with the family or perhaps your, your small group, um, you could be praying also that, that those who are afraid in a time uh, like this would find comfort and, and rest in the Lord's presence. Also, that while we're in uh, closer settings, like, like these small group settings as a, as a church, uh, that the Lord would use these times to, to grow us in our love and care and concern for one another, that he would deepen our relationships and then also pray for the word to continue to, to speed ahead. You know, God is not surprised by the coronavirus or caught off guard. All things are happening in accordance with his plan and his will. And, uh, and we desire that, that the gospel continue to speed ahead uh, to that, that our missionaries. I've, I've even heard some reports of, you know, people because of the, the travel bans and stuff, have, have been able to share the gospel longer with those uh, who are, are still in their countries. Um, so the Lord is at work. Pray for the, the gospel to speed ahead, that resurrection hope would be proclaimed to, to those who are afraid of death. Um, if you have a Bible nearby, grab it and, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, uh, 13, verses 13 to 20 will, will be uh, the focus, uh, but we'll back it up a couple to give some context from, from last Sunday. Let's hear the word of the Lord uh, together, and then we'll pray. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Father, I thank you for this time to be able to to come to your word. I thank you for uh, that this is a, a word that gives us encouragement for our faith that we may have strong confidence even stronger confidence um, as a result, and that it would move us to persevere in obedience to you uh, no matter what we may face. Would you do it now, uh, even as people listen 
uh, to this message, uh, work in their hearts and lives to uh, encourage them in the race. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. So in our track through Hebrews, uh, chapters, uh, chapters 5 to 10 have been explaining uh, why Jesus' priesthood is greater than that of Aaron. Uh, he's greater, uh, so far we've seen, in that God has appointed him after the order of Melchizedek. But we've also had to wait for him to explain Melchizedek a bit further. Uh, instead, he exposed, there's some sluggishness in, in this church. God has spoken a word in Jesus, uh, but these believers have become sluggish toward Jesus. Uh, They've reverted to old ways in in Judaism and slowly drifted away from Jesus. And so he sounds the alarm. uh, If you continue this way, you will forfeit your soul. At the same time, he's confident of better things. Uh, He's confident they will heed his warning. And come out of their sluggishness. And that's part of the reason he circles back to Melchizedek in verse 20. He's taking them with him into maturity. Into the maturity God desires under the new covenant. He's taking them out of their sluggish hearing and into a deeper treasuring of Jesus. Because with Jesus comes an unshakable hope. An unshakable hope. People long to have an unshakable hope. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote the following, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things that offer to give it to you, But they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I think we all know what he means. We long for an unshakable hope. A good that, that, that would eventually fulfill our, uh, our longings. But we find ourselves repeatedly disappointed. Even the best of things in this world never quite measure up. Never quite keep their, their promise. Never quite last as, as long as we'd like them to last. By contrast, Hebrews reveals an unshakable hope. A promise-keeping God. A Savior who secures a hope that will not disappoint. Now to see this, I'd like to take four steps with you. Uh, Step number one is hope clarified. Hope clarified. You know, many times the word hope comes with a degree of of uncertainty. Uh, People desire a good thing to happen, uh, but they're not sure it will. And so we say things like, well, I, I hope you sleep well. right? Or, I really hope he makes the field goal. Or, I hope you get that raise, after all. And we may even have some grounds for believing the good thing could really happen, uh, you know, but there's still some lack of certainty. 
Uh, And so quite often, our expressed hope really reflects a kind of wishful thinking. And that's not what Hebrews, that's not the way Hebrews uses hope, or or, or the rest of the New Testament for that that matter. Uh, Christian hope conveys absolute certainty. Or um, you get a taste for it in in verse 11. Uh, He wants them to, to have the full assurance of hope. You see that there? The full assurance, meaning the the future good in view is so certain that it produces a rock-solid confidence in the present. Uh, Later in chapter 10, verse 23, he says this. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. So so why hold fast without wavering? Because God is faithful. In other words, the objective, something outside of us, the objective, proven faithfulness of God produces an inward confidence that he will come through on his promise. There's no question whether God will follow through. And that's, that's the kind of hope that's in view in our passage. Also important to clarify is hope in Hebrews is always tied to, to the end. Okay, it is meaning, meaning the fulfillment of God's promises in, in the new heaven and, and the new earth. Uh, notice in verse 11, it's the full assurance of hope until the end. Uh, verse 18 calls it the hope set before us. Uh, in Hebrews 4, the hope was that of eternal rest. And we, we talked about that in chapter 4, what, what that eternal rest was. No enemies, uh, creation, bountiful uh, Everything rightly ordered, everybody made whole, all in the presence of God. In chapter 11, it's it's the better country. In chapter 12, it's the unshakable kingdom. Uh, It's certain, but it's something we're still waiting to experience in in full. And then one more clarifying remark about the hope here. This hope actually produces hope perseverance. It produces perseverance. You know, it's hard to run a race when there's no hope of finishing. Uh, when, you, when you have no hope of, of, of getting a reward. Uh, it's hard to get out of bed when you're despairing and, and, and hopeless. It's, it's hard to stay faithful when all seems lost and pointless and meaningless. But when there's hope... You, you persevere. You're, you're moved to keep going. You run harder for the prize. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the, the Hoover Dam, right? It's this enormous uh, uh, concrete uh, dam built in the, in the 1930s. And then behind that dam stands the largest reservoir in the U.S., Lake Mead. Uh, the Hoover Dam is an arch-gravity dam, so gravity... Uh, forces massive amounts of water downward, and, and the dam then channels that water uh, through several hydroelectric generators, and those generators then produce electricity to power uh, various cities. When the reservoir is full, the generators run. This passage taps into a massive reservoir of hope for the Christian. It's a reservoir filled with hope to overflowing. 
And when you draw from the hope found in Jesus, you can't help but run and work and serve and worship and, and persevere. That's, that's the goal in verses 13 to 20. He means to keep us running, persevering by tapping into this massive reservoir of hope that's found only in Jesus. Now you might be wondering, okay, well, that's great. You've clarified hope. You've told us uh, what, it's a, what, what, what kind of hope is, is before us. But how does this actually work, right? What does this actually look like, this, this uh, perseverance-producing hope? Uh, well, he gives us an example in Abraham. In Abraham. Uh, through Abraham's life, we see this perseverance-producing hope exemplified. So we've had hope clarified. Now we're moving to hope exemplified. Okay, notice how verse 12 ends. He, he states his purpose negatively and then positively. Negatively, he says, so that you may not be sluggish. And then positively, but so that you may become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then enters Abraham in verse 13. Abraham is one of the people you should imitate insofar as he inherited the promises through faith and patience. Let's read it together. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So he's doing two things, okay? Two things. On the one hand, he's pointing out the significance of God swearing by himself. And and we'll get to more of that in in just a minute. Um, On the other hand, he's pointing out how Abraham obtained the promise. You see it there in the words, having patiently waited. Now, if you go back in in your Bibles to Genesis 22, you'll find uh, the words quoted here, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. They come from Genesis 22, verse 17. But super important is is the context in which God speaks these words. They come uh, right after God tests Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And anybody reading Genesis would be absolutely shocked that God would ask Abraham to do this. I mean, Isaac is the promised son. All of the promises to Abraham were were to come through Isaac. All of the blessings, a great nation, a great name, even the hope of of all the families of the earth. We're not talking here just of mere tribal uh, blessings, but worldwide blessings, blessings that would eventually come to you and you and me. Uh, through the pro- uh, promised son in Abraham's line. In Galatians 3, Paul, Paul, uh, Paul can even describe them as promises that, that foresaw uh, the, the, that, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So all these promises are bound up with Isaac. More than that, Abraham had to wait 25 years uh, for Isaac. And all the while, he's staring at his own body, which, which was as good as dead, and he's considering the, the deadness of Sarah's womb. 
And so he waits these 25 years, and then Isaac finally comes. They enjoy many years together, and then God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now, the story just all of a sudden turns your, ties your stomach into a knot. I mean, I mean, what about the promises? And yet Abraham demonstrates this faith and patience. And we see it in, in two different places in Genesis 22 that teach us about the kind of faith he had. So, so uh, in Genesis 22, when they reach Mount Moriah, Abraham tells the young men, he says, Hey, you guys, his servants, you guys stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. And you're thinking, wait a second, how can we come again if he was to sacrifice Isaac? Well, Hebrews eleven nineteen answers that for us. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Wow, you, that is an amazing faith as, he's, as they're on their way. Uh, another piece to, to his faith is in Genesis 22. Uh, we see it when, he, when Abraham says that he knew God would provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the point being is that Genesis 22 gives us a clear picture of the faith and patience we ought to have. Okay? God's promises aren't inherited any other way. Uh, they're not inherited through ease and comfort and a life free from, from hard obstacles. They're inherited through those who look at the obstacles in the face and then consider the goodness and faithfulness of our God. They consider the hope bound up with God's faithfulness, and that hope then moves them to persevere in obedience. The hope bound up with God's promise empowered Abraham to obey, to serve, to persevere in the face of a great obstacle. The hope bound up with God's promises will do the same for you. Even more, we know God, we know the promise's fulfillment. Right? Jesus is the true son of Abraham. He's the true son in Abraham's line who comes to bless all of the nations. Abraham only received the promise provisionally. In Jesus, we have the promise made more sure. How much more are we to become imitators? of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We have all the more evidence that God is faithful. And we'll talk more about that in just a, a few minutes. Let's now take a, a, um, a third step here, hope unchangeable. So we've seen hope, clarif- hope clarified, hope exemplified. Now we're seeing hope unchangeable. I mentioned before the significance of God swearing by himself in, in verse 13. Uh, verses 16 to 18 now explain why God did that. Uh, it's not like God's original promise needed anything added to it. I mean, God stands behind his own word. and He's not a liar. Uh, nothing can stop him from accomplishing his word. And so why then did he take this extra step to swear by himself. Why add an oath to a promise he already made? Well, let's find out. 
uh, beginning with verse 16. It says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So he's just drawing an analogy here. People often swear by something greater. We know this, right? I swear to, I swear to tell nothing but the truth, so help me God, and hand on the Bible. I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. Right? People do this, right? It, it finalizes the deal. It guarantees the word. When it comes to God, however, there's no one greater. There's no one greater. And that's what verse 13 said. There's, there's no one greater. There's no one more powerful, more knowing, more present, more good. And so if God is going to swear at all, he must do this by himself, right? But why? Why do it at all when you're God already? Well, verse, look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, right? That's you. If you belong to Jesus, that's you. Right? He, he's now shifting away from Abraham to the children of Abraham. And he doesn't mean the, the uh, children by birth, but children by faith in Christ. A faith that flees to Jesus for refuge in verse 18. God desired to show you something more convincingly. Well, what did he desire to show you? Verse 17. The unshakable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. How about that? And if if my grandpa was here, he'd say, well, boy, howdy. It's amazing. Why did God, who already made a promise, already also add to it an oath? He did it to serve you, beloved. He did it to solidify your confidence in Him. He had you in mind when He did it. He wanted to display for you the unchangeable character of His purpose. He didn't have to do that. He chose to do it for your sake. He is as committed to His purpose for you in grace as He is to His own being. Not because you're so great, but because that's how much he wants you to enjoy his greatness. And that's how much he wants you to have strong encouragement to hold fast. This is why the historic creeds and confessions uh, affirm that God is immutable. That he is unchangeable. Right? He, he stakes his own covenant faithfulness to you upon his unchangeable being. And this is precious to the church. It should be precious to the church. Because to ever say that there can be change in God's being or character is to immediately compromise assurance in the promises that he gives to us. See, sound doctrine is crucial for perseverance. The true God is the unchangeable God. When this God makes a promise and then swears by his own self, we have all the more assurance... That what he promises will, in fact, happen. We have, an un, we have a hope that is unchangeable. Why? Because God is unchangeable. 
Now, there's some debate as to, as to what these two unchangeable things are in, in verse 18. Now, some will say that, you know, he's moving now to Psalm 110 again, and, and the two unchangeable things, they relate to Christ's priesthood. So, so Christ is, uh, uh, is both forever and his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. So those would be the, the two uh, things that he's talking about. I am more inclined to, to stick closer to verses 13 and 14, the two unchangeable things would then be the promise itself and, and the oath added to it. Okay, um, To take that view that, that the two unchangeable things are the promise and the oath, it doesn't actually exclude the discussion of Psalm 110. It actually serves it. Uh, because in Psalm 110, we get another oath. We'll, we will see that later. Uh, in chapter 7, uh, verse 20, there we see another oath there that God swears about Jesus' priesthood. And Jesus' priesthood was bound up with how God chooses to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Jesus' priesthood answers how all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Which leads us now to a step four. Hope secured. Hope secured. Uh, Verses 19 to 20 further describe the hope mentioned at the end of verse 18. And he describes it in three ways. He calls the hope an anchor of the soul. Right, Growing up in in Corpus Christi, we'd sometimes watch these these giant ships uh, enter enter the channel. And and I'll never forget just the, the size of the anchors on these things, that the anchors alone just just dwarfed us. When we think of, of, of an anchor, it signifies this great stability. That you 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 stay put uh, in in your place uh, in the midst of a storm. Right, the the wind and the waves that they, they won't shake you off course. The anchor leaves you unmoved. Uh, he also says our hope is sure and steadfast. And in chapter 2, he used the same words to describe how God's message uh, through the angels proved reliable. Right? The evidence to back it up was that God had punished every transgression. Uh, so also here, our hope is reliable. It is steadfast. It's not going to become less certain tomorrow And the evidence to back it up is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say, thirdly, it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, under the old covenant, uh, the inner place uh, behind the curtain uh, was the most holy place in, in the tabernacle and, and then later in, in the temple. Uh, it signified the very presence of God, uh, where God sat enthroned in, in glory. And, and only once a year could the high priest enter the most holy place. And it wasn't the people that could enter. The people could never enter it. Only the high priest and only once a year into the most holy place, and he did this to atone for the people's sins. And the point of all this was to tell the people a story, and that story goes something like this, that God is holy, 
And because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. Uh, Sin deserves judgment. Sin uh, keeps people separated from God. People cannot enter God's presence as long as they have their sin problem. If you were going to enter God's presence, you had to enter God's presence on his terms and not your own. At the same time, we see, we find in this story that God chooses to love sinners and to bring them into his presence. But the only way they can enter his presence is by the death of another in their place. And hence the high priest would offer the blood of, of bulls and goats. And these were but copies of the greater things to come. Right? The, the blood of bulls and goats never really took away sins, but they pointed to a, a better sacrifice. And the sacrifice, it's the sacrifice that Jesus brings. Jesus comes and he offers himself and his blood removes sins once and for all. More than that, Jesus actually opens the way to God through his sacrifice. We too now have access. Notice it's better than what was accomplished under the old old, old covenant, right? It's not simply that Jesus entered God's presence like the other high priest did, and, and, and that's the end of that. He's the only one who, ever, who will ever enter uh, God's presence to enjoy that presence. Rather, he's, he's bringing a whole bunch of people with him. Everybody belonging to Jesus now gets to come before God's presence too. That's how extensive his cross work is. That's how wonderful his resurrection life is. I mean, he's a risen high priest who enters God's presence, it says, as our forerunner. Forerunner. To be a forerunner doesn't mean he just finished the race first. That, 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 that he was the fastest one to cross, to cross the finish line. It means that other runners are going to follow in the wake of his victory. And that's you and me. We're the other runners. He's, he's bringing us with them because of what he's done for us. So in some sense, we, we do get to enter God's presence already. We saw that earlier in Hebrews, where we have, we have confident access to him. Uh, we come to him in prayer. Ephesians 2 says we're, we're already seated with Christ in the, in the heavenly places. Uh, when we die, even, even then we will know the presence of the Lord immediately. But even beyond that, there, there's, some, there's coming a day when we will enjoy the very presence of God in a new creation... Uh, with new and glorified bodies, and all because of the work of Jesus. And this, this is our hope. This is, and it's a beautiful picture. You see it in the book of Revelation, which is, which is why the, the new Jerusalem that comes out of, out of heaven is, is in the shape of a cube, is because that, the, the dimensions of the holy place in the Old Testament were a cube. And he, what he's saying is that the, the very presence of God will come down and cover the entire earth. This is our hope. And that hope is secure for us because Jesus is already enjoying it himself as our forerunner. So, what does this mean? What does this mean? How should such a passage impact us? Or perhaps you're listening to this and and you've been searching for hope you look around and you see the pain and, and the injustice in, in the world. 
and you see the sickness and the disease spreading, and you give yourself wholeheartedly to your job, and then you learn that your company is downsizing in short order, you won't have a job anymore. Perhaps you fell in love and then you had your dreams dashed. Or or perhaps your 401k just tanked with the rest of the stock market. Why bother getting out of bed anymore? Is there any hope, you you may wonder? Well, this word from the Lord says there is hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. You you can keep searching the world over for for hope, but all you'll find are things that that can't keep their promises and people that that, that don't follow through and philosophies that are empty. What you need is a hope that lasts a hope that's real, a hope that can't be shaken, that that doesn't fluctuate with the ups and downs, but is already secured, and that hope comes alone in Jesus Christ. So flee to Him for refuge. This hope is for those, as we saw in verse 18, it is for those who have fled for refuge to Jesus, for safety, for comfort, for security, for eternal life itself and And when you do this, you will know this hope. Without Jesus, your life will continue in hopeless despair, and in the end you will perish away from the presence of the Lord. Your sin will will continue to keep you away from God's presence, and to be away from God's presence is to have no real hope. But God gives us a real hope by addressing our deepest need, which is our need to be reconciled to Him. To trust in Jesus unites you to a true hope in the very presence of God. All these longings that you want fulfilled but don't find fulfilled by the world, they can only be satisfied truly and lastingly in the presence of God. And that is the Christian hope. The presence of God and the fullness of His glory. And Jesus alone is the one who brings us into it. Most of you listening uh, know Jesus already. Especially those of you who are members of of this church. You've you've fled to Jesus for, for refuge. But perhaps you've lost sight of the hope secured for you. Or, or maybe the hope seems fuzzy right now because of the, the craziness of life and the, the panic over, over uh, coronavirus. Or maybe the cloud of, of grief uh, has so overwhelmed you that you find it hard to, to feel hope. Well, the saints of old can identify with you. The saints of old can, can identify with, with, with where you're at. And in particular, I'm, I'm thinking of the person in Psalm 42, where he says that his soul thirsts for God. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. Uh, he says, my soul is cast down within me. At one point, he even says, God, why have you forsaken me? But in these moments... As he's rehearsing this grief before the Lord, what else, how else does he respond? He doesn't pretend the pain isn't there. He doesn't ignore the suffering and hardships. Rather, he brings them to the Lord and then he starts to preach the true hope to himself. Twice in this psalm he says, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's talking to himself here. And then he says, he's preaching to himself. That's what we mean when we preaching the gospel to yourself. He starts by saying, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Then he says, Hope in God. Talking to himself. Self, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. So where does he find hope in the midst of this distress? He finds it in God. God is his salvation. And and more than ever, we can see that salvation revealed in the person and work of Jesus. More than ever, we can hope in God because Jesus has entered God's presence on our behalf. He is our forerunner and he has bound himself to you. Such such that that no matter what you're facing, no matter what waves of life are crashing against you and trying to, to knock you off course, his anchor is going to hold you fast. God wants you to be encouraged by that. He swore an oath to give you strong courage in that. Some of you uh, might be quite fearful uh, about the coronavirus lately. But but listen to what uh, Tom Schreiner wrote yesterday in response. Um, I think it relates well to what we're, we're covering here in Hebrews. He says, we are not promised that we will survive the coronavirus. But we are promised that we will survive something far worse. The curse that falls on those who don't know God. We pray for God to be merciful in our distress. We weep with those who weep. We suffer with those who are suffering. We use wisdom and take the necessary precautions. But we also lift up our heads in confidence. We have a hope that neither death nor life nor viruses nor sagging economies can touch. Our hope is secure, brothers and sisters. Nothing can take it away. Preach this to yourself every day. Make it your meditation. Again, not to deny reality. That's not what the Christian faith does. Abraham considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's specific. That's real. He looked it in the face. 25 years. And yet he grew in faith, Romans says. He meditated on the God who is faithful to to keep his promises. We have a sure and steadfast hope in Christ. Make that your meditation too in the days ahead. And then as you tap into this massive reservoir of hope, imitate those who who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's what, that, that's his whole goal uh, back in verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This letter is written to Christians who are wavering in their commitment to Jesus. And part of that is due to persecution. The other part is, is due to their own passivity. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't simply tell them, just imitate the faithful, dadgummit. He doesn't simply say, just get with it. He first sets before them the hope secured by Jesus. Why? 
Because when you see the glory of the hope, when you, when, you, when you have assurance that God will come through on His Word, when you see how God has already come through on His Word in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and how that means that all the other promises are going to come, come through as well, you want to run. You want to persevere. You want to be faithful. It's all going to happen. It means something. It's all heading somewhere. And so also with us. We have seen the hope set before us. We have seen how unshakable our hope really is. It's grounded in God's unchangeable character and it is secured by Jesus' forever priesthood. And now we must let that hope move us to action. Let us become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I remember going to a, a conference. Uh, I was... It was during a certain season when I was uh, really wrestling with whether to keep pastoring, uh, with whether, you know, that was the right role that I was called to in in the church. Uh, My doubts mainly arose from seeing little results after laboring and laboring and, and laboring some more. Now, part of my discouragement was the result of my own sin, uh, my, my lack of thanksgiving prevented me from, from seeing all the good things the Lord was already doing. But the other part of my discouragement was the result of, of not really uh, seeing the word bear fruit in, in some of the relationships that I was investing in. But I was at this conference and, and uh, the speaker was talking about the consistent pattern in Scripture of saints having to wait patiently for God's promises to transpire. And that was helpful. I felt like I could really identify with, with that, uh, that waiting. But then he said this, the seed, meaning the gospel seeds that, that we plant in the ground, the, the seed, it may lay beneath the clods until you do. And then it springs to life. And then he asked, Brother, are you okay with that? And everything in me at that time wanted to scream, No, I ain't okay with that. I want to see results now. I want people to change now. And that was a a revealing moment for me. In my faith, what it revealed was that my heart was set more on enjoying the results than it was on enjoying God Himself. It exposed that I would be faithful just so long as I got what I wanted when I wanted it. Sure, seeing immediate results is an immense blessing, but that's not ultimately why we serve the Lord. We serve Him and remain faithful to Him simply because He is worthy of all our obedience. No matter what we might see in this life, He is worthy of everything we have. Inheriting the promises comes by faith and patience, beloved. So let's imitate those who've gone before us in in, in faithful, patient, 
gospel ministry. A glorious inheritance awaits us. The Lord will come through on his promise. He is unchangeable. More than that, he secured our hope with the gift of his only son. Jesus will be your help until you inherit the promises with him. Let's let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I do pray that for those watching this and for myself, that Christ would become our hope. That he that we would see the the security that we have in him that we would truly grasp every day we wake up how unchangeable your promises are um, and how how capable you are and how strong you are to hold us fast until the end and then knowing this hope lord would then encourage us to to further perseverance and faithfulness for your kingdom. We ask these all in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.